It has happened. This is Ukraine's capital. What seemed unthinkable in the 21st century is now underway. A democratic country has been invaded by its nuclear-armed neighbor on multiple fronts. People are not safe. This is DIA Connections. My thoughts turn to friendships that I'd built with the Ukrainians, especially those in the Ukrainian Air Force, and thinking what they must be going through as they, they face the opening day of the invasion. It's hard to square that rhetoric by what he's actually doing inside Ukraine to innocent people shot in the back of the head, hands tied behind their backs, pregnant women being killed, hospitals being bombed. I mean, it's just unconscionable. These are dramatic and dangerous times for Ukraine, for its neighbors, and for many countries around the world. Governments or rebels or the people controlling a certain area don't want journalists there because they don't want the truth to be told. I see myself as a messenger for the people I photograph. Thanks for joining us on DIA Connections for a behind-the-scenes look at the war in Ukraine. We're calling this episode, Truth Be Told. That's an air raid, an air raid siren. Several of them going off here in the center of the Ukrainian capital. For millions of people in Ukraine, bordering Ukraine and around the world, the war began on February 24th, 2022. History books will reflect on that as day one, when everything changed. But in the months preceding Russia's unprovoked attack, a different type of war was underway. It wasn't being fought with weapons like tanks or rocket launchers. Instead, it was a war of words. We start this hour with the U.S. using intelligence to fight an information war and doing it to Russia for months now, and it's working. In years past, the intelligence community's assessments, reports, and information about Russia's intentions would have remained classified. But in a break with the past, a different tactic was needed to combat Russian propaganda. From the Pentagon. In fact, we have information that they've pre-positioned a group of operatives uh, to conduct what we call a false flag operation. From the State Department. One possible option the Russians are considering involves the production of a propaganda video, a video with graphic scenes of false explosions depicting corpses, crisis actors pretending to be mourners, and images of destroyed locations or military equipment, entirely fabricated by Russian intelligence. After a rigorous review process to protect sources and methods, going on the offensive by declassifying information and making it publicly accessible was not only an interesting strategic maneuver, it was also very uncharacteristic. This is an unprecedented use of declassified intelligence. We've never seen this level of information warfare before from the U.S. government. Unusual, yes, but unprecedented, not so much. It's happened before, and the DIA was front and center. 60 years ago was the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. The United States and the Soviet Union were engaged in a truth war on the world's biggest stage, the United Nations. All right, sir. Let me ask you one simple question. Do you, Ambassador Zorin, deny that the USSR has placed and is placing medium and intermediate range missiles and sites in Cuba? Yes or no? Spy plane photographs analyzed by experts from the Defense Intelligence Agency revealed medium-range ballistic missile bases on the island of Cuba, secretly placed there by the Soviet Union. 
The photos were declassified and shared with the public. Don't wait for the translation, yes or no. Whether it's intelligence on Russian military intentions then or now, it helps to have the right people in the right places, like the embassy in Ukraine. That's where members of DIA's Defense Attaché Service, or DAS, were located before Russia invaded. One of those attachés joined DIA chief historian Paul Isaacson to tell us about what he saw and felt during that difficult time. Colonel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You were from 2020 until the evacuation of the embassy in Ukraine on February 12th, 2022. You were the air attaché in Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about your experiences prior to the Russian invasion and give us an idea. What does it really mean to be an air attaché? Basically, uh, my job as an attaché is to develop relationships with government officials, but more importantly, with military officials. And as the representative of the chief of staff, of the U.S. Air Force, my job is to make sure I have those relationships built out and uh, very strong so that if the U.S. Air Force needs assistance, I've already built those relationships and I can lean on the Ukrainian Air Force for help. Okay, so you were there in the embassy before the invasion. What were you seeing at that point? So the first uh, Russian military buildup on the border of Ukraine actually occurred in the spring of 2021. So right around March and April is when the Russians started sending large quantities of military equipment to the border of Ukraine. The Russian Ministry of Defense declared that their SNAP exercise was complete and over, and they were ending the exercise and sending the troops back home. And then later on in the year, we started getting indications of troop movements going back to the border. So in our mind, we're thinking, is this just another bluff by President Putin, or is there something else going on here? So there's significant military presence at the border. Can you tell us what that actually looked like? The, the Russians basically just had these large staging areas of equipment. So think of it like a parking lot. That was the first buildup. And then later on in 2021, they started doing it again. But leading up to the actual invasion, you started seeing some of this military equipment like fan out and spread out across the border, what you might call an attack formation. As you're seeing this in real time, are things as obvious as they appear? Yeah, that's a great question. It's like, what are we seeing? Why are we seeing this? Is this a bluff? Is something going to happen? And when you're in that situation, you're constantly thinking, okay, is this going to happen or not? And if it happens, how long is it going to last? And how bad is it going to be? And that was constantly on my mind. After days on a razor's edge, Ukraine is now a nation at war. Just hours ago, Russian forces began their attack. President Vladimir Putin warned It was unprovoked, but this is what Russian President Vladimir Putin unleashed on Ukraine. As the sun came up this morning, a missile strike... Where exactly were you on the 24th, the day of the invasion, and what thoughts were going through your mind? On the 24th of February, I was uh, on... TDY evacuation orders. I'd, I'd already left Kiev. I was in Washington, D.C., and I was watching the 24-hour news media channels when the, when the war broke out, watching the images and the videos, both on the news media and on social media channels. The largest invasion of a neighboring country in Europe 
since World War II. The Russian military... My thoughts turned to friendships that I'd built with the Ukrainians, especially those in the Ukrainian Air Force, and thinking what they must be going through as they, they face the opening day of the invasion. How did you think they were going to hold up against that challenge? A lot of people thought that it would be over quickly. What did you think? I, I too, fell in the category that this would probably end sooner rather than later. The intelligence was right about the invasion, but wrong about the results. The grit and resiliency of the Ukrainian people was widely unanticipated. Tragically, another aspect of the war was also unanticipated. Tonight, the war in Ukraine has entered a new phase of brutality as Russia seems to be targeting civilians trying to flee their country. The unprecedented I personally did not draw a lot of attention to the fact that Russia could attack civilian targets. My initial thinking was, of course, when you, when you conduct warfare, you strike the military first. You take out the invading country's uh, capabilities to fight back and defend itself. And so hitting civilian targets, they're a very low-value target. They don't do much to prevent that country from fighting back, other than demoralizing the, the population and decreasing the will to fight. I suppose there are several different ways to catch someone in a lie. Perhaps one of the best ways, though, is to take a picture of it. My name is Lindsay Adario, and I'm a photojournalist. Vladimir Putin said the Russian military was not deliberately targeting civilians. He was lying, and acclaimed war photographer Lindsay Adario knew it. I mean, yeah, it was absolutely clear. The rounds came closer and closer to this bridge, and everybody knew this bridge was where civilians were crossing to get to safety. She knew it because on a Sunday morning in March 2022, she was in Ukraine at a bridge being used as a civilian evacuation route, a bridge where women, children, the elderly, and the ill were known to be fleeing to safety. I knew there would be shelling in the distance. I had gotten a sort of a, a, an update from all my colleagues. My understanding was that they were not targeting the bridge because it was a known civilian evacuation route. As we approached the bridge, it seemed very tense. I, you know, I've been covering war for two decades, and I just got the feeling like something was a little different from the way my colleagues had described to me the night before. Lindsay Adario is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's covered humanitarian crises and wars for two decades. She's willing to go to dangerous places like Lebanon, Iraq, and Afghanistan to do a job that few others will. On this day, that dangerous place was a bridge in Ukraine, and her gut instincts were prophetic. Lindsay captured the horrific aftermath of a strike on that bridge where civilians were crossing. It was a disturbing image that appeared on the front page of the March 6th edition of the New York Times. Front page for all the world to see and for Putin to try and deny the undeniable. In a few moments, she'll describe that day in detail for us, including what she did days after the photo was published. But first, let's get some perspective about the job of a war correspondent from someone who excels at it. Here's a quote that provides insight from her book, It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. Quote, 
I was now a photojournalist willing to die for stories that had the potential to educate people. I wanted to make people think, to open their minds, to give them the full picture of what was happening. Lindsay, thanks for joining us. I just read one excerpt from your book, and I'd like to read another and ask you to comment on it. Sure. You said, I became fascinated by the notion of dispelling stereotypes or misconceptions through photographs or pressing the counterintuitive. Why do you think that happened? The United States is so geographically removed from the rest of the world. And so I grew up in Connecticut and I had no idea of the privilege I grew up in and and the privilege I continue to have because it was all I knew. And it wasn't until I started traveling and seeing things and meeting women and entering into these cultures that I had made all of these assumptions about because I only saw sort of, uh, I knew very little about them. And so part of what I like to do with my work is to photograph in a way that educates people and teaches them and also kind of upend stereotypes and shows sort of a window into people and a story that surprises. You find yourself in some of the worst circumstances imaginable, and yet you're still able to take beautiful pictures. How do you do that? And how do you depict beauty and candor in those situations? I assume that's the goal, right? I think one of the goals that I have is to have the reader or the viewer not turn away, right? So I can enter into a really horrific situation, and I will always be trying to look for something compelling, whether that's beautiful light or composition or sort of something, some connection with the person or people I'm photographing so that the viewer of the photograph is drawn in. And so, you know, people do often say, wow, it's difficult because your photos are both beautiful and heartbreaking. And that's I'm kind of going for that. I mean, I'm really trying to bring people in and we can do that with beauty. But yeah, when you look at the subject matter and start to ask yourself questions, you realize it's a heartbreaking situation. Lindsay has photographed Afghans before and after the Taliban reign, starving children in Somalia and civilian casualties in the Iraq war. She's watched uprisings unfold around the world as people quite literally fight to the death for their freedom. When I photograph someone dying, and and yes, it's happened uh, several times while I'm behind the camera, I cry sometimes, you know, I feel it. I, I get emotional. I try to keep the camera in front of my face. I try to keep photographing, which, you know, because the camera can sometimes sort of provide a barrier, even though it's a superficial and, and very sort of small physical barrier, it does force me to focus on my role and my work. I try to keep my emotions in check, but it is very difficult. Educate us about some of the complexities of doing the job. It can't just be happenstance that you arrive at the right place at the right time. Yeah, there is a great misconception that a photographer just shows up somewhere and spends all his or her time photographing, and that's absolutely not the case. Most of the work that I do is research, trying to arrange access. Access is a huge part of my work. 
and then finding a local journalist or translator to work with me. And I think that is also one of the hardest parts because, you know, a lot of the places I work, whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, Darfur, Congo, Yemen, Syria, you know, all of these places that I've worked in the past and now Ukraine, I'm working alongside someone in very dangerous situations. So I also have to ensure that they feel comfortable in those situations. There are a lot of elements I'm always dealing with, and actually photographing is sort of the easiest part of my work. You mentioned dangerous situations. Let's talk about that. Because of the life you've chosen, that's the nature of the work. And you've had a number of close calls. Libyan authorities said the group was captured in eastern Libya last week by forces loyal to Colonel Gaddafi. The Times says all four had entered Libya from Egypt and went in without visas, as many Western journalists have. You've been taken hostage on two occasions. You've been sexually assaulted, and you've dodged mortar shelling. I'm sure that you're asked all the time if there's a line you won't cross, but I want to ask you if there are circumstances when you will cross that line. When is it so necessary to shed light on something that you would risk your own life? There are places where the shelling is constant and where uh, we know it's the risk is very high. But for example, if we hear that a residential building or a school has been hit where there are many civilians who have been killed, children have been killed, that is a war crime. And there are certain uh, things that need to be documented. If I know that photographs and photographic evidence is essential, then I will probably go. Do you see yourself as a sort of messenger of information? Because that's really what we do here at DIA. We bring intelligence to policymakers. And I thought about that after reading something that you said about being a photojournalist. You said, it's the way we make a living, but it feels more like a responsibility or a calling. It makes us happy because it gives us a sense of purpose. We bear witness to history and influence policy. I see myself as a messenger for the people I photograph. Whether that message reaches a reader or the president or anyone who is helping determine policy, I think it's equally as important for me that I get the facts straight, that I get access to the heart of the story, that I'm documenting civilian casualties, that I'm documenting the indiscriminate shelling now in Ukraine. I feel a great responsibility to basically document what's happening and to get it into the hands of people who I can either educate or influence or simply provide a record of what's going on. We're hearing the sound of heavy bombardment taking place, the sound of tank fire going out, of rocket launchers, uh, artillery strikes coming in. It's difficult to imagine the boundless courage it takes to be a war correspondent. And I couldn't help but wonder if the risk versus reward equation of the job changed for Lindsay when she became a parent. I asked her if she went to hot spots less frequently and took fewer chances. I did become more cautious, but I think it's important to note that becoming a parent coincided with having been kidnapped twice. I had just been released from captivity in Libya, where I was held for a week when I got pregnant. I had been kidnapped twice. I had been thrown out of a car on a highway in Pakistan during the Taliban invasion of Swat Valley. I had been in the Korangal Valley during Operation Rock Avalanche during this big ambush. I have had many, many close calls. So I think naturally I was at a point where I thought I had to evaluate sort of 
do I want to stay alive or not, you know? And then that also coincided with becoming a parent. It is hard to deny. This CCTV footage clearly shows the missile that struck a shopping centre in Kramanchuk in mid-flight. Compare that to... Missile strikes on shopping malls, hospitals, schools and railroad stations will leave an indelible mark on our collective consciousness. Ukraine says two missiles struck the railway station in the eastern town of Kramatorsk, from where thousands of civilians were trying to flee the fighting. Written in Russian on the side of a missile fragment, the words, for the children. The reporter who filmed... At the Pentagon, the job of providing updates to the press on an almost daily basis belonged to John Kirby. We want you to listen to one briefing of his in particular. The question posed to the former Navy Admiral was if he thought President Putin was acting rationally. Putting aside whether you agree with his logic, do you believe that Putin is a rational actor? It's hard to look at what he's doing in Ukraine, what his forces are doing in Ukraine, and think that any ethical, moral individual could justify that. It's difficult to look at the... Sorry. It's difficult to look at some of the images and imagine that any well-thinking, serious, mature leader would do that. It's hard to square his, let's just call it what it is, his BS that this is about Nazism in Ukraine, and it's about protecting Russians in Ukraine, and it's about uh, defending Russian national interests, when none of them, none of them were threatened by Ukraine. It's hard to square that rhetoric by what he's actually doing inside Ukraine to innocent people, shot in the back of the head, hands tied behind their backs, pregnant women being killed, hospitals being bombed. I mean, it's just unconscionable. John Kirby's visceral reaction was understandable. Like all of us, he was moved by the horrific pictures of destruction, despair, and death in Ukraine. One of the images that will likely become a defining photo of the war was taken by Lindsay Adario. Lindsay, let's talk about the photo that was on the front page of the New York Times. Tell us where you were and what were the circumstances at the time. So it was March 6th, and I had been in Ukraine since the 14th of February. But for some reason, I didn't feel like I was doing a good job, like I was getting sort of to the heart of the civilian casualty, um, sort of the toll the war was having on civilians. We knew that there were people fleeing from Irpin and Bucha, which were uh, towns in the cities or towns on the suburbs of Kiev, across this bridge that was broken. We saw across the street that the territorial defense, the Ukrainian forces, were bringing out some wounded people. So we ran across the street, and there was like a cement almost cubby um, that was almost like a checkpoint. And so we took cover there. And within minutes, a round came in and landed sort of a few hundred feet off in the distance. 
My security guard said, you know, do you want to pull back? And I said, no, because they know that this bridge is where they're bringing the wounded and the elderly and people are coming out. And so they won't come closer. They're probably aiming at a Ukrainian position off in the woods. Through her viewfinder, Lindsay watched as parents rushed their children through the line of fire seeking safety. Another round came in that came in closer. I popped up, and then another round came in literally like, I don't know, 25 feet from us. And I saw the flash. I popped up, and everything was very dusty and chaotic, and I couldn't really see what was across the street. There were four bodies. I saw immediately sort of the tiny little boots of a child, and I thought, oh my God, I I, I couldn't believe that it was a family. I worked my way around. I took a few photos, thinking to myself, I can't believe what I just witnessed. I have to make these photographs. But of course, I was dying inside because I have two children. A mother and her two children and a man who was a church volunteer trying to usher the family to safety were all killed by Russian mortar fire. As a general practice, the Times doesn't usually publish photos of bodies, especially when they're children. But this time was different. Russian President Vladimir Putin denied that his forces were deliberately targeting civilians, and this photo was evidence that told a different story, the truthful one. But Lindsay still felt the story was incomplete. I asked myself, who were these people in life? You know, we've seen them in death, and and who were they? It didn't seem fair that the only image the world knew was of their sort of lifeless bodies. And so I said, maybe we should try to sort of piece their lives back together. You know, who was this woman and children? We made the decision to interview the father. It was the most devastating moment, I imagine, of his life. But he so graciously met with us a few days later. He had been out east taking care of his sick mother. So by the time he came back to Kiev, it was like three days later, he sat down with us and told us all about his life and his family and his wife and his children and why he wasn't there. And how he spoke to his wife the night before and was so sorry he couldn't be there to help them get across the bridge. And she sort of joked and said she would be fine. And then he learned about their death, of course. At the end of the interview, I said to him, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I'm the one who took these photographs. You know, I I hope you understand how important they are. And he looked at me and he said, of course, they needed to be published. And, and, you know, he he said so much as, as painful as it was, he said, it's very important. And he understood profoundly the power and the importance of those images and that it would hopefully show the world that Russia was targeting civilians. Lindsay shared a final thought with us about the picture, and it speaks both to who she is and to the tragedy in Ukraine. She told us, it encapsulates exactly why I do this job, why I risk my life, why journalists have to be there, and why it's important to document these things. 
It's because there are leaders who lie, and it's very important to show the truth. Thanks for listening to DIA Connections and our episode, Truth Be Told. DIA is committed to telling the true story about Russia's war in Ukraine. To learn more about the Defense Intelligence Agency, visit DIA.mil. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to DIA Connections.